Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In his stand-up comedy, Josh Blue fully embraces his difference. He has cerebral palsy, and much of his material focuses on how others perceive him. Broccoli. His new one-hour comedy special is streaming now on all major platforms. Later in the program, we'll hear from Josh Blue on a variety of topics, including his time on Last Comic Standing and his athletic career with the U.S. Paralympic National Soccer Team. First... Serene images at odds with the depiction of brutality pervade the journey, a series of paintings by the Atlanta-based artist Andre Henderson. The works will be on view at the Southwest Atlanta Gallery P2 at Parlor from July 24th through August 25th. Andre Henderson joins us now with wood sculptor Doug Pisek. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you so much. Andre, what inspired you to create the journey? Well, I was living in New York at the time as a designer, and I left my corporate job and moved to Atlanta. At that particular time, I was doing a documentary film on artists, it was called the mysticism of art. And I was learning, getting my hands wet with filmmaking and directing and all of that on my own accord. Uh, and I met two great artists here in Atlanta, in Serenby about 10 years ago. And I had just picked up my paintbrushes again after being so long away from them and just wanted to try and, and paint again, just to kind of get that mojo going. and. They were very kind. Gail Foster and Tom Swanston uh, let me have their studio for the summer in Serenby. And so uh, I was painting and painting and I felt like I was just really just literally pushing paint around the canvas and was really frustrated. And so one uh, early morning, it was uh, after 1 a.m. or 2 a.m., I just said, wow, I don't even know uh, what to paint anymore. And I heard a voice say, paint something for us. I said, okay, well, who are you? And they said, we're the ones who've come before you and we're the reasons why you're here. From that moment on, I thought, those are my ancestors. For the past 10 years, I have been painting with their guidance and their inspiration. Were these literal voices or was it in your mind's ear as you were contemplating? I'm curious. It was in my mind's ear. It was more of a soft kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It was more of a intuitive inclination because I consider myself, I consider all of these paintings of the intuitive nature, meaning I just paint from what I feel for color, texture, tools, and all of those things. So the inspiration, I would feel, was more of an intuitive voice. Mm. So this project has been 10 years in the works. Yes, it has been. And it's taken many forms since then as well. 
when I initially started painting these pieces, they started out on about a, a 36 by 36 canvas size, which I thought at the particular time was an accomplishment and they were relatively large enough. Um, and then I said, well, let me add another size. And so I added two pieces and then I added another piece. And before I knew it, I had nine panels of 36 by 36 uh, paintings forming one complete piece, all separated in and of itself. When I was doing that, it actually brought the viewer in to the experience because now these paintings are over life size and the figures were becoming life size as well. And um, they became a little bit more theatrical in nature because you can see so much in these in particular panels. Yes, I appreciate the details. You can see the outline of the man chained to the bottom of the ocean floor, crying out in your painting titled Fourth of July. It's incredibly powerful. Why did you want these figures to be visible yet translucent at the same time? I wasn't necessarily painting the individual. I was painting the, the spirit because these were individuals who had fallen off the ship and fallen into their own demise. There's been no record of how many or who they were, men, women, and children. So in record, it was just honoring all of them. And what I was trying to do with my pieces was to highlight that aspect. So fallen off the ship being slave ships. Yes, the slave ships, correct. Yeah. Would you talk about the significance of the flag in this scene? I think there's a backstory. Yeah, the flag is an interesting story. The first viewing in which people I didn't know were actually being able to view the journey in its full extent. So after that particular show, which was exhausting in so many different ways, I sat on the edge of my couch and I said, gosh, you know, after that, what's next? And my intuitive voice said, go get the flag. I was given a flag about 30 years ago from a great grand cousin of mine who had happened to be in the military. And there was a three gun salute at his funeral. And uh, his wife at the time, Julia Dyer, his name was Vincent Dyer, uh, handed me the flag. And me at that time, I was the youngest in the family, which just kind of held on to the box and kept it. And that box has traveled with me in the same box that was given to me 30 years ago from New York to Los Angeles to Colorado to Atlanta. And it always traveled with me. Yeah, so it said, go get the flag. And I went and got the flag. And I took the flag out of the box and I opened it up. And I didn't realize how large this flag was. It's 11 and a half feet by 13 feet. And I threw it on to my floor. I was living in a loft at the time, so it was able to fit on the floor. And I just looked at it because I had never been that close to an American flag ever. And given the fact that I was painting so many things that were historical that involved the flag, I had a little bit of an angst towards it. And I didn't know what it was. I thought I was just tired and exhausted from just having the show. I said, well, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll, I'll probably have a different feeling. Well, that same angst was there with the flag and I had no recognition what this, where that was coming from. Finally, the intuitive voice that always guides me said, put it on the wall. And I, at that time I had very large walls. So I was able to put it on the wall and I said, well, it's on the wall. Now what? And he's like, paint it white. So I painted the entire American flag completely white and let it sit there for a few days. And then I took it off the wall and it was interesting because it left this tattered impression on the wall of these white stars and stripes that was just really, really striking. I kept that on the wall for some time and I flipped the flag over and then I didn't know what to do with it next. I'm like, well, I painted it white, now I flipped it over, what's next? So. I was going through some books and I was cleaning off my shelves and a picture of a flag that I must have torn out. I can't even remember when I tore it out, but a tear from a ship came out and fell right onto the floor. And I picked it up and I looked at that ship and I looked at the flag and that's how the painting began. 
And so the flag is called the 4th of July. And I had a quest to finish it actually on the 4th of July because I wanted it to honor Frederick Douglass's speech in 1852 on July 5th. Yes, and you have a quote in your artist statement online. Would you read the quote? I say with a sad sense of disparity between us, I'm not included within the pale of the glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. Frederick Douglass, 4th of July speech, Cynthia Hall, Rochester, New York, 1852. It's interesting, just now, I think, more Americans are becoming aware of the ambivalence, if not alienation, that many Black people feel around Independence Day celebration. And I think it's fascinating to see that the population at large is learning more about Juneteenth and and why that is cause for celebration. Yes. And with my art, my pledge to it, to the these particular pieces, is to honor, heal, and educate. And that's for all of us, because we I, I needed to be educated about uh, my own African American history. Although I did study it in college. I still am learning more and more each day as I research some of the uh, work that I'm doing uh, with the artwork. But in the healing process as a nation and as a people, it's important for us to know that process that I think paintings do heal. So the paintings, in a sense, are to attract, but also honor and then heal. Uh, And it's given given something back to the ancestors uh, that I'm trying to do my part as an artist. And in that process, you have to come up against horrors, unspeakable horrors and, and brutality. And yet you try to balance it somehow with, as we talked about earlier, these serene images. So talk about the shark in this series? And are the ancestors transcending the sharks? Well, the the sharks, from a biological standpoint, actually followed the slave ships, because as the bodies would fall into the water, the sharks would eat them, uh, as well as eat anything else that fell off the slave ship. So they knew what those slave routes were. So the sharks, in a way, are an iconic figure in these pieces that I'm painting. And in particular, there is a shark, uh, which is called the 400, which is uh, literally eight feet by nine feet. So it is a almost a full-size shark, but within the body of the shark, there are dates that I placed so people can find out what those dates actually mean. There are dates such as uh, 1619, which everyone's familiar with, but there's 1831 and there's Uh, 1776, and so on and so forth. And there are also um, slave ships in the body of that particular shark. So I want to draw people in because when someone sees, wow, that's a big shark, and then they see all of these dates, I don't put them next to what they are. I just say, please find out what these are. In a moment, we'll return to more of our conversation with the artist Andre Henderson, which also includes wood sculptor and collaborator Doug Pisick. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with the artist Andre Henderson and wood sculptor Doug Pisick about their collaborative endeavor, The Journey. We've been talking about Henderson's decision to paint the flag left to his cousin's widow, White. Here, I ask him if that's an intentional reference to white supremacy. You know, that the more I think about that, I think intuitively it was. And the tattered white wall left behind beside the flag as I was painting it was a reminder of why I was making that particular piece as well. So yes, yes, indeed, it, it was uh, in reference to that. When showcasing some of the pieces from this series, in the past you and Doug collaborated on mounting your paintings onto his frames. Doug, would you describe how the frames appear and how you work together to create these elaborate mounts? Oh, I'd love to. I'd like to start by indicating how the collaboration came about, which is which is actually critical to how the frames came to be. Andre reached out to me. We, we knew each other through a, a mutual individual. And he reached out and told me about the series, told me what he was thinking. And he had some pieces which weren't quite as grand. They were actually smaller. He was trying out some smaller works and knew that they didn't pop. They didn't strike someone as life-size pieces, but they were incredible pieces that were smaller and he wanted the work. And I asked why he wanted to work with me. I'm a white individual. I don't have the same history and the same, the same mindset about all of this. I didn't grow up with it. And Andre, to his credit, said that he wanted to add a unique perspective and have diversity in his work, which to me just immediately drew me into uh, to this individual. The fact that, that, that Andre recognized that looking at others and other perspectives can cause something to be larger than it could be otherwise, made me want to work with them. And the result was the pieces I did were beyond anything I ever would have thought of doing on my own. He inspired me to expand my skills, my abilities, and the way I think about art. And for that, I thank him. And I took a look at these one foot by one foot panels that he had painted, which were of these dramatic scenes. And I immediately was started thinking and while talking with Andre about what could be done and the fact these were ships. So the first pieces that I framed for him were done out of burnt wood. I took panels of rustic used wood, put them together and torched them black to give that dark image, but also the wood when rubbed down looks like old ship timbers. And then the frames themselves, the way I suspended the works in the frames, I realized I just felt they had to be um, shackles. And I taught myself how to weld so I could work on these pieces. And I created metal shackles that surround a couple of these pieces. And the pieces are suspended in the air from the four corners of the shackles with rusted chains and spikes mounted into these timbers. And the paintings themselves became symbols of the individuals that the paintings uh, were representing. The way they just come off uh, the wall, I think really brought to light what the paintings represented. And I was extremely happy with the results of those first pieces that I worked on. Mm, the impact is stunning. And I hope this doesn't seem irreverent, but it brought to mind crucifixion references. It's interesting. That that hadn't crossed my mind. Ash, I don't mind stating that I'm Jewish, which actually is... Oh, wait, you, know, you are? Important. 
I am. <laughs> Me too, which is why <laughs> I don't want to seem irreverent. <laughs> I appreciate that. But actually, the reason I bring up that I'm Jewish is because that played a very important part for why I wanted to work with Andre as well. And then Andre came to me about this project and he said it was about the millions and millions of humans that lost their lives in transport. And I didn't know about the numbers. Obviously people died, but I didn't realize how many. And I felt ignorant and upset that I didn't know the story. And it helped inspire me to say, this story has to be told. People need to know it. They need to understand it. History should not be forgotten. That's why it, it really felt close to home to me. And I felt a connection to it indirectly. And uh, that's why I wanted to tell the story. With Andre. Yeah. You know, what you point out goes back to what Andre was saying about these great gaps in how we are taught history. Look what is left out. Look what we're uncovering now. This year marked the centenary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. I learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre from the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater. I should have learned about that in middle school or a high school history textbook. Similarly, I, I never learned about the internment camps of Japanese Americans during World War II from our history yeah. books. They're great examples. And for some reason, we hear about these horrible things that have happened in other countries or other peoples. and. When it's internal, it seems to not be brought to light. And it's important that in these days, these things are being brought to light. So that's why I just felt so wanted to work on these. And the pieces I described were just the beginning. I ended up uh, fortunately being able to create the, the framework around several others uh, of Andre's paintings. It, there's this one image that just seems so gracefully floating in the water as you described earlier, serene, even though it was a horrific event. And I felt like they shouldn't look as serene as they did in order for the story to be told. And it's not pleasant, but I actually ran spikes through the painting, through the frames from one side to the other. And as a friend of mine who saw it described it, he said it looked like the spikes were piercing the soul of the individual. Mm. It's much darker story than what the work I normally do, but that's important. It needs to be. It needs to be like that. So, Andre, how does this story, this history that you are telling through your paintings ultimately transcend the brutality and horror? I think the transition of that is the once again, I'll say the honoring and acknowledgement of it, that it did happen. And after I leave this planet, these paintings hopefully will still remain here and still remind people of what had happened as a huge historical event that not only happened in the Americas, but it happened all over the world. And we are a part of it. And I wanted to mention another thing about the flag is that the flag is just is an iconic symbol of America's responsibility and involvement of the slave trade. But what I want to do is have something called the flagship project in which I collaborate with every single country that had anything to do with the slave trade and get all of their flags here into my studio and paint on them and send them back over the sea just as those ships came back to their museums or their galleries or into their educational institutions so they too can see uh, what has happened and what their country was a part of. So there is a driving force for me to continue painting this and, and educating and honoring in that way. Will you be painting those flags white? I probably will. They'll probably start off white. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I just want to point out that with everything we discussed, Nothing that we say can describe the beauty of these pieces. 
it's just amazing to me how Andre has created something as graceful and beautiful and detailed while bringing to light the story that he's telling. I'm just thoroughly impressed with that juxtaposition and how excellently it's been executed. And this is so important to what we are examining, Andre. I know that there is tremendous reaction to talking about African-American history as situated in agony and that there needs to be emphasis on the spirit overcoming the circumstances and being uplifted and celebrating the joy of the strength of the ancestors. I guess that's what you are ultimately doing in the serenity that you impart from these images. Is that correct? Yes, it is, because in in order for the Africans to actually have survived such a horrific endeavor on the bottom of a ship with no food and no water and dehydrated and collectively bunched together, only the fittest of the fittest could have survived that. So my ancestors were fortunate enough to obviously have survived that. And once again, that's the reason, as they told me, that's the reason why I'm here. So in that survival, that is what you're seeing in that creation. But in what you said, the the reason why I paint an almost angelic feeling in, in some of these pieces, because I feel they are transcending. I feel they are uh, going into a higher place. But I think we as African-Americans also have transcended and will continue to, to do that as well. So it's a tribute to the spirit. Yes, indeed. Finally, Andre, several pieces from this series have been on display throughout the years. But this is the first time the series will be showcased in its entirety. How does it feel to finally exhibit the journey as a complete work? It is exciting. It is daunting. It is is taking my sleep away. (laughs) The paintings themselves are excited, wanting to be touched up and fixed up and brushed up and beautified. I am so happy and so grateful that this opportunity is is coming, uh, not just for me, but for the community, because this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to go out in the community and I want people to experience it uh, in its full breath and its full form to actually see a nine foot square painting side by side and to see a collective pieces. My newest pieces are the warriors. Africans didn't go with um, in a docile way. They actually fought. So they're actually warriors who fought the enslavement. So I wanted to present that as well. And then just one more thing is there's some small pieces where you may see across or references to Christianity. And the reason for that is the Christianity was used to justify enslaving not just Africans, but people all over the world as well. And one of my largest pieces is called The Good Ship Jesus, which was actually the name of a slave ship. So hopefully that that will answer your question to how I feel and what I want to do as far as going forward. And I'm just so excited for the show. I just would love everyone to come out, bring your kids, bring your grandfather, bring your grandmother. Everyone should should see this and experience it artist Andre Henderson, and wood sculptor Doug Pisek. Their collaborative effort on the journey can be viewed July 24th through August 25th at Atlanta's P2 Gallery in Castleberry Hill. Learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment a former U.S. Paralympian from the national soccer team, Josh Blue, talks about his stand-up comedy. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. 
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. In his stand-up work, comedian Josh Blue fully embraces his differences. He has cerebral palsy, and much of his material focuses on how others perceive him. Broccoli, Blue's new one-hour comedy special, is streaming now on all major platforms. When he last visited us, we covered a variety of topics, including his time on Last Comic Standing and his athletic career with the U.S. Paralympic National Soccer Team. Here, Josh Blue tells us about when he became interested in pursuing comedy. You know, I actually started in college. I went to um, a very hippie college in Olympia, Washington, called Evergreen State College. And um, you can create your own courses and your own majors, and I actually studied stand-up comedy. Fantastic. I had a hippie boyfriend in high school who went there for Uh, just that reason. Perfect. (laughs) Well, from the beginning of your career, um, did you ever shy away from discussing cerebral palsy, or did you just embrace it head on? You know what? Uh, initially, I didn't even bring it up. I didn't mention it. I um, just talked about all the other crazy stuff that I've done and all the experiences, world travel. And then uh, it slowly started to leak into my material, and I discovered that people really responded to me being brutally honest about it. And and um, I felt like the more honest I was about it, the more people um, could relate. Um, I, I feel like everybody has a disability in some way. And, and um, you know, me throwing myself under the bus for your entertainment, uh, people really eat it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to have a pretty good self-concept to be able to do that. I I thought about um, something I once heard Stephen Colbert say in an interview as, as I was prepping for our conversation today. And Stephen Colbert said that he was picked on a lot as a kid, picked on in school. He was bullied. I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, being funny came as a self-defense mechanism for him. And he found that the quicker his comeback, the more respect he gained from the kids who bullied him. And eventually they backed off and he was the funny kid. Do you think that if not suffering... Um, itself, that something about our vulnerabilities uh, lends itself well to comedy. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I have a lot of similar situations and stories like that as a kid. And and I've always been very quick to verbally slap back. Um, And and like he said, once you uh, let them know that you're quicker and funnier than them, then they they don't want to mess with you. They don't want to be uh, perceived as a fool. Um, so if the disabled guy's funnier and quicker than you are, you're probably not going to mess with them too much more. So you developed your sense of, your sense of humor kind of emerged out of necessity as a kid? Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I think I've always had the gift of being funny, but it definitely got sharpened the more I went into the world and the more I saw how things are perceived and how people perceive disability. Well, let's listen to a clip from your routine at the 2006 Last Comic Standing competition where you won. I was walking downtown and the drunk tank stopped and picked me up. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. I was like, wait a minute here, fellas, there's a misunderstanding. I'm I'm not drunk, I have cerebral palsy. They were like, that's a pretty big word for a drunk ass. So, that wasn't painful? 
that was just what came naturally. Right. And it's a true story. Oh. <laughs> so that's the kicker. You know, a lot of uh, my humor is just really based on real-life experiences. <laughs> and how did winning Last Comic Standing, um, how did winning that competition help build your career in comedy? Well, it definitely just blew the doors off of anything that I was doing at the time. I was already a pretty established like uh, college act, um, doing a lot of... Uh, shows nationwide just uh, on the sort of disabled, you know, I do the disabled awareness month stuff like that. But then once I got on uh, Last Comic, uh, it just really launched my career. And, and now I'm on the household name and and uh, uh, everywhere I go, people, people recognize me. And well, I definitely have a very distinct gait. <laughs> It is distinct. You can pick me out of a crowd for sure. Josh, it's really fun to watch that, to look back on your performance in 06 at Last Comic Standing. I mean, you cracked up the likes of Kathy Griffin. Yeah. Not many people can do that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, it's funny for me to watch that stuff now. It's really really painful because <laughs> to me I'm like oh God, why are they laughing at it but um, you know I just feel like such a better comic now well, um, you know 13 all, years in yeah. the life of a young man can make a big difference yeah. um, I just put out my fifth hour special so uh, that's a pretty pretty amazing feat you know doing that much material in yeah. that amount of time congratulations so in addition to your being a comedian, you're also a soccer star. <laughs> I wouldn't say star, but yes. Well, you were a member of the U.S. Paralympics national soccer team. What yeah. was your position? Uh, I was the uh, forward, which is uh, the goal scorer in theory. <laughs> I've, I've well, you seen don't have it, to uh, score many points in <laughs> soccer. I mean, I, I'm always as a basketball fan. I'm always just in disbelief at how you win a soccer game with so few points. Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, what an uh, amazing sport! It's the world sport, and uh, what an amazing experience to travel the world and represent uh, our country. What was it like being part of the team? Um, you know, what? it was one of those things that I feel like really kind of a turning point in my uh, life just because up to that point I didn't know too many other people with disabilities or cerebral palsy to be specific and and then all of a sudden I'm I'm embedded in a group of guys that uh, are really embracing their disability and not just surviving but thriving and to me that was just such a cool eye-opening experience and and I think it um, attributed to my a lot of success on stage as well. We have a clip from your Ron White Salute to the Troop stand-up routine where you reminisce about the times you were part of the U.S. Paralympic soccer team. Let's hear it. One thing I really miss about the team is uh, traveling with everybody because to me there's nothing more entertaining than watching 12 dudes with cerebral palsy get off an airplane in a row. <laughs> Everybody in the terminal thinks there's some type of zombie invasion going on. None of us really walk like that. We just like jacking around, you know. <laughs> See how far through customs we can get. So making the best of disability there. Um, do you ever wonder about audience response, um, awkwardness? Do people some do people feel safe laughing at something? You know, they've been told. Hopefully, many people have been told, right. "Don't look at disability right. in a mean, mocking way." Well, I feel like, um, you know, I'm so comfortable with who I am that it you have no right to be uncomfortable with it. Like, if you don't like it, then turn it off or watch something else. But I'm just telling you my story and my point of view. And, um, again, I'm I'm happy to throw myself under the bus for your entertainment. And, and to me, I feel like 
Um, laughter uh, is the best way to educate people about it. I'm not smashing you over the head going, oh, you should pay more attention to us because we don't get right. I just show you that we're normal folks and we live our lives and, and, and we all have the same, you know, desires and needs and all that. You know? Yeah, I am a firm believer that comedy is um, more profound well, I feel like, tragedy. yeah, and it's really one of the only places now that you can really speak the truth without being judged, uh, you know, like you can't say it on radio and, and have an opinion without somebody else going, oh, that's terrible. But if you're making fun of yourself and, and laughing, then, you know, people take it to take their medicine better you know so do you see yourself sort of taking on the responsibility for being a spokesperson for those with cerebral palsy sure you know it took me a real long time to be comfortable with that i i never got into this for that reason i got in because i love doing stand-up um but people take more from it than just the comedy and I'm finally old enough or mature enough to embrace that and go, hey, I really am giving a voice to cerebral palsy and not just palsy. I, I, I feel like I'm a spokesperson for all disabilities. We had as guests on this show a while back uh, members of a comedy improv troupe, um, Asperger's are us. Are you familiar with it? <laughs> I, I'm not. That's they, hilarious. They though. have a Netflix show too, and um, all four members of the troupe have Asperger's syndrome. I thought this was incredibly courageous for them to to make a life out of standing up in front of people in a crowd, often in places where, you know, drinks are served, and yet they love it. And just as you say, in addition to just their comic art, they like educating people or making them aware of what it is and how they're also functioning people. Right, and and just showing the world. I think that's that's the best you can do is just by... Um, just lead by example and, and, and show people, uh, like I said, it's, we're just normal folks. We just uh, maybe get to the end result on a different path. Josh, you are multi-talented. Um, in addition to your comedy, you are also a visual artist. Yeah. How would you describe your artwork? I mean, you have gallery shows. I do, yeah. I've had a few shows. I've sold a bunch of pieces now. Uh, my paintings, uh, you know, Jackson Pollock-esque. <laughs> um, my thing is I know that I'll never be able to draw a straight line, so I don't try to do that. Yeah, well, I just, supposedly Chagall couldn't do that yeah. either. And I, I feel like um, there's a lot of movement in my work. Like you can see the movements and the. Um, so I, I love it. I do it for myself, and then other people uh, like it too. So it's a bonus. I also do wood carving. So I do like big African masks. Uh, I was born in. Cameroon, West Africa, yes. and uh, I was very influenced at a young age by the African wood carving, and uh, I do a lot of that, and, which is, you know, if you think about it, a guy with palsy using a sawzall, maybe not a great idea, but... Uh, How did your parents feel about that? Well, you know, I tried to do it when they weren't around, you know, <laughs> but, you know, by the time they saw a piece, it was already done, you know, so... Um, Even you're being born, you're having been born in Cameroon, you've turned that into something comic. Yeah, everything. Everything's up for uh, for humor in my life. Yeah. So you call yourself I've, uh, a, a white? African-American, that's right. And technically that's true. With cerebral palsy, so I look really good on paper. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. There's also a musical side to your talents. You dropped a music CD, Josh Blue and the Hooligan Stew Review. Yep. I love it. Can we listen to 
Can you picture that? <laughs> Someone described it, I read, as Tom Waits meets the Muppets. Yeah, that's a pretty good description. I would say (laughs) it's spot on. Sounds like drunken pirate music or something. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's wonderful. And and the lyrics are so clever. Yeah, it's fun. It's a fun one, that one. (laughs) Yeah, well, so good music just came to you. I mean, you were Um, going to sleep one night and you thought, oh, boom, I can write music too. Not so much. You know, uh, I'm definitely a much better stand-up than musician, that's for sure. Uh, You know, I have a a bunch of musical uh, musical friends, and they're in bands, and they're just like, hey, why not not do a fun, funny album? And they took a long time (laughs) to figure it out, but it it was really really a fun experience. Now, in your stand-ups, you talk about being a dad to your two kids, your daughter Seika and son Simon. How do you integrate fatherhood into your routine? Well, it's, again, it's just a natural fit. I'm, I'm just talking about my life, and, and there's such a big part of it that I can't help but draw material. And, and uh, you know, having two kids and one good arm, you do the math on that, you know? <laughs> so just trying to keep up with these little guys. And uh, they're not so little anymore, no. 11 and 9, which, uh, you know, just blows my mind how quickly it it flies by. I know, and and sometimes you wish you could just press pause. Yep, I, I miss the pause part, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we all do. In your routines, you also talk about marijuana, Josh. Um, Many state legislatures have passed laws or are passing laws on medical as well as recreational Mm -hmm. marijuana use. You live in Colorado where it's legal to smoke weed. Does that help your physical discomfort? No, it uh, messes me up more. I just like getting high. (laughs) No, I'm just Nothing kidding. Medicinal I'm just here. kidding. No, you know what? The, I've always said this about it. It's not that it makes me necessarily feel better. It just makes me forget that there's anything wrong, and then I go do what I want to do, as opposed to being like, "Woe is me!" and I'm in pain. It just makes me want to go and do stuff and grab life and and do it. What kind of responses have you had from audience members who relate to you? Sure. I mean, like I said, I feel like um, everyone uh, can relate to me because everyone has some hang-up in their life or some um, something that keeps them... You know, there's there's always something in your life you wish you could be better at or you... And, um, you know, I get such an amazing amount of response from people like I said not just with palsy but all disabilities that are just like thank you for for giving us a voice and thank you for um showing me that I don't need to take this so seriously and and, because I feel like that's a lot of it is people just feel the pressure of the world and they get hung up on like, oh, I walk differently, so nobody's gonna love me, or uh, and and I just, to me, it it makes me feel sad that people feel that way. Like I'm like, 
It's not like that. Who cares what other people think about the way you walk? I mean, that's the least of uh, who you are. Stand-up comic Josh Blue, his one-hour comedy special, Broccoli, is streaming now on all major platforms. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Some good news here. Two Atlanta nonprofit arts organizations were just selected to participate in the Bloomberg Therapies Digital Accelerator Program. Kenny Leon's True Colors Theater Company and MOTA, the Museum of Design Atlanta, will both receive funding aimed at technology and digital program training. The $30 million Bloomberg Project will help arts organizations in the U.S. and the U.K. strengthen their online presence, sustain their innovations, and build bigger audiences. A recent survey found that 60% of U.S. museums lacked a digital plan. Bloomberg hopes that this new program will transform experiences with cultural institutions around the world. How great that two of our Atlanta organizations will benefit from this program. Congratulations to True Colors Theater Company and MODA, the Museum of Design Atlanta. You've been listening to City Light our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll stay up all night with the popular young adult author Laura Silverman. That's the title of her new collection of short stories by 12 different authors. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.